This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Welcome to the final pottery of Socialism 2022. So, first up, we'll have David McNally. David teaches history at the University of Houston and is director of the Project on Race and Capitalism there. He is the author of many books, including Blood and Money, which you can find at the Market Table, at the Market Book Room after this. Um, and he is the editor, the editor-in-chief of Spectre Journal, which is a table in the back, so you can find out more about them after this as well. So please welcome David. Thank you, Charlotte, and let's start with one more shout out to Haymarket Books who made all this possible. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be here, and in particular, to be speaking alongside comrades like Ashley and Donna, whose work and thinking I've admired for a very long time, uh, it's an enormous treat for all of you that we're going to get to hear them in a few minutes. I'd like to begin with the actual title for the session, A World to Win. It's really important that we close our discussions on that note. It reminds me of the old expression that we don't just want more bread. We do want more bread, by the way. But we don't just want more bread, we want the bakeries. We want all the means of producing, distributing, and sharing wealth on the planet for human needs rather than for private profit. And that's what it means to say that we have a world to win. And it means, of course, that in everything we do, tenants' right or, rights organizing, Organizing against police violence, organizing against persecution of LGBTQ friends and comrades, organizing for union rights at Starbucks and beyond, we're always trying to link that work to the idea of the power of ordinary working class people to change the world and to claim the world, to run the world. And when I'm thinking about these problems, one of the sources of inspiration I often find myself going back to is the late, great C.L.R. James. And in his last interview 
before he died. And remember, this is an 88-year-old man who's giving this interview. James said the following when asked about his revolutionary optimism. Quote, you never know when it is going to explode. The revolutionary movement is a series of explosions when the regular routine of things reaches a pitch where it cannot go on. To me, that's a philosophical question based on history, and I am never in any doubt. I'm in doubt for tomorrow, maybe, but not for the day after tomorrow. It has been a fundamental part of my outlook, he tells us. A statement of Marx early on that the revolution comes like a thief in the night. And what James is saying to us there is when great social upheavals come, they don't come because all of us in this room planned them. It's because we did loads of organizing that made resistance possible, struggle possible, fightbacks possible, small victories here and small victories there, defeats that were not as bad as they might have been because we fought back, that all of that is about building the reserves of struggle that allow the thief in the night to break through with the great explosions. And sometimes we, we romanticize the explosions as things of distant history, the Paris Commune, the Haitian Revolution, and so on. But I want to submit to you that in the United States, we have recently lived through such an explosion. It is the George Floyd BLM uprising. And we need to be honest and to say that a tremendous amount of great work was done, and I'm going to pay tribute to that in just a moment, but that we were not ready as a socialist left to build out of that uprising the multiracial young working class organizers who are going to lead the next waves of struggles and the next explosions. And we need to get there. We need to be building those networks. So let me remind you, this is the New York Times, not radical McNally. The New York Times says, that 25 million people in more than 1,500 cities and towns across the U.S., never mind all those other countries in the world where uprisings took place in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter uprising, that 25 million in the U.S. alone in 1,500 cities and towns demonstrated. And of course, it became also not just the George Floyd uprising, but the Breonna Taylor uprising, and the Ahmed Aubrey uprising, and so on. But let me give you a few more concrete examples that I think illustrate why this was an explosion in CLR James's terms. Nashville, Tennessee. Six high school students, girls between 14 and 16 years old, launched an organizing drive for a demonstration after the murder of George Floyd. 
They'd never met, and they'd never organized a protest before, and they brought 15,000 people out into the streets of Nashville. <laughs> These were predominantly teenagers of color, black and brown, who said, if no one else is doing it, we're doing it. We're going to make it happen. In Houston, Texas, where I live, 60,000 came out. This is the city where George Floyd was born and raised, where most of his family still lives. And not only did 60,000 come out, but if you haven't seen it, Google the Black Cowboys. Because I want to tell you, when dozens and dozens of black cowboys wearing their George Floyd t-shirts came on horseback through Discovery Green Park and up the roads, arms raised, fists clenched, I couldn't see a cop in sight. <laughs> they knew where the power lay that day. They knew. And that's what we're talking about when we say that we have a world to win. Take a look at what happened to the third precinct in Minneapolis. That's great. Just Google it and have a look. <laughs> and remember the art and celebration. Creative aggression, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Thank you for that. Your term has been all over social media since you said that the opening night. Creative aggression, look at the redecoration of the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond, Virginia, with George Floyd and Harriet Tubman all over it by way of projection, night after night, BLM graffiti, ACAB graffiti, all over Robert E. Lee. Because as Lenin told us, a revolution is also a festival of the oppressed. And it's got to be creative energy, creative aggression, reclaiming the world with our art and our culture. As I say, the, the left in the United States, for all kinds of reasons, didn't create the networks of young multiracial working class organizers that could have and should have come out of that movement. And I want to remind you that how much that contrasts with the struggles of the 1960s and 70s. When we talk about those struggles, we immediately talk about organizations. The Congress on Racial Equality, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Students for a Democratic Society, the Black Panther Party, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit. We're talking about organizations that educated, trained, and developed grassroots organic leaders of mass struggles. And that's the next step for us. It's only out of that. People can talk about the need for parties, but it's only out of building those networks of multiracial working class leaders and organizers that that kind of organization is going to be possible. And so let me go back to CLR James for a moment before I wrap up. One of the problems we had during that uprising is that, and you'll note when I quoted James, he does not say the revolutionary movement is a series of elections. <laughs> and no one 
Montgomery, I don't say that because I think we should have no involvement in electoral politics. I'm all for the left using the electoral arena strategically. But it has to always be subordinate to mass insurgency. <laughs> like a thief in the night. So let me give you one last example. I talked earlier on Saturday about the wave of revolts that has been happening in this new set of food and climate crises in countries like Peru, Ecuador, Tunisia, and I talked about Sri Lanka. And I want to share with you this because, you know, they toppled the president in July in Sri Lanka, and they didn't do it through the ballot box. They did it by over a million people going into the streets and invading the presidential mansion. I know there will be somebody in the room who says, why does he quote the New York Times? But come on, they get it right occasionally. Sure. I'm going to quote it. Here's their description. By early afternoon, the mansion had been breached, and Mr. Rajapaksa, that's the president, had slipped through a back gate, sailing away in Colombo's waters and eventually fleeing the country. The protesters controlled the streets and seats of power swimming in the president's pool, lounging in his bed, frying snacks in his kitchen. That's our mass insurgency comments. And really, the message I want to leave you with is that we have all kinds of important work and organizing to do. But we're going to need, in the years ahead, conferences like this that are bringing together and uniting our organizing efforts so that we take the struggle forward into new mass-based organizations that can drive forward the social insurgencies because I think every one of us in this room agrees we don't want to be asleep when the thief arrives in the night. University, where she is chapter president of the New Brunswick chapter of Rutgers AAUP AFT. She is faculty advisor at Million Dollar Hoods at UCLA, and she's the author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, as well as her latest book, which is out from Haymarket, you can find it in the book room. It's called Asada Tati, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and Music for Black Lives. Please welcome Donna. Hi, everyone. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to see all of you. So many people in this room I've never seen before. And for the people that I have known, I haven't seen you in many years. So my heart is full for us all to be here together. I would like to start with a huge round of thank yous, starting with Sean Larson and Charlotte Pentai. And from the whole conference organizing team, 
I'd, I'd also like to thank Anthony Arno, Julie Fine, and the whole Haymarket crew. Thank you. It's amazing to me seeing what you have accomplished. You have built an incredible platform for the socialist and Marxist left, and we all thank you for the incredible work that it took to make this possible. So I thought I would start with where we are. As we confront the most dangerous period of our history, in which right-wing authoritarianism is stripping the last vestiges of our beleaguered and limited liberal democracy, the need for political organization and community has never been more urgent. In many respects, I think with the recent rulings of the far-right Supreme Court and the passage of voter suppression laws in more than half of the states in the country, minority rule has already been achieved within much of the legal and electoral apparatus in our country. In this context, it is essential that we organize, support one another, and build socialist community for all. Inside, outside, and against the state. One of the many dangers of American exceptionalism is the limits of its self-reference. Viewing our current moment through this narrow lens can make this look like a dire, dire scenario with an active right essentially seizing control of the legal apparatus of the federal government, which is poised to take over other branches. Street-based violence, law and order, and law and order make racial fascism an immediate and tangible reality. But I think one of the keys to this moment and having hope in this moment for the future is looking to Latin America and other parts of the global south to see how broad coalitions of the left have taken back power from right-wing fascist and authoritarian regimes. Looking outside the United States is essential. <laughs> Throughout the world, the left has used many methods, including general strikes, direct action, landless people's movements, rural organizing, fighting austerity to reclaim the countries, and we must do the same. So I would say, I, I have a list of things that give me hope. And at the top of this list, I would start with true internationalism and collective solidarity. Other things, industrial unionism and higher education fighting low-paying contingency faced by 80% of people who teach. Fighting to end subcontracting and deunionization, turning our workplaces into sites of wall-to-wall -wall organizing, strike waves and union drives, Amazon workers in Bessemer and Staten Island, Haymarket Books, the abolitionist movement in theory and practice, the Million Dollar Hoods Project, which has forced a documents release of over 600,000 documents from the LAPD and is working with community 
to figure out how to build a community-based rebel archive to abolish police and reinvest those funds in a just future. The dissenters, Tempest, BDS, and every word that Robin Kelly, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Barbara Ransby, and many, many of the people of, at this conference have written. Other things, the Chicago Teachers Union, the Dream Defenders, the Bear on Hulu, and all of you being here. As Charlotte has said, it has been incredible to see all the new people at this conference. That has been the most exciting thing for me of the whole weekend. And I'd say the majority of people that I have met and seen, it was their first time. And many were not coming from organizations. So this, what David was talking about, figuring out how to build power and organize in this movement and use this as a platform for us to go back to our own work sites and homes and cities and think about how to organize. In, the urgent, in urgent times with looming climate destruction, racial fascism, and mass extinction, working together in a collective is the only way to confront and survive the existential challenges we face. Earlier in my career, I saw writing as my primary form of activism. However, the core lessons that I've learned from union work are the importance of listening, breaking down ego, empowering other people, and working collectively. I cherish coming together with comrades in the Tempest Collective and all of the many tendencies that are here to fight racial fascism and realize our most cherished freedom dreams for a socialist future. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Finally, we'll have Ashley Woodard Henderson. Ashley is the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, Tennessee, from which this conference draws so much inspiration. She is the first black woman to be in that role and is also a leader in the movement for black lives. We're so excited that she's also the author of, of a forthcoming book from Haymarket which will be published in the Abolitionist Papers series. So look out for that, and please welcome Ashley. Great Helen Lewis 
who I would argue is the mother of Appalachian Studies, died last night. Um, and for folks who don't know Helen, uh, Helen was the first woman to serve as official in our official capacity because a bunch of women have served uh, as directors at Highland, whether they ever got credit for it or not, like Rosa Parks, like Seth Clark, and others. Uh, but Helen was the first to get the seat, and so I'm sending love to all of you who are finding out that news today. Uh, it sucks, and what a life. And what Helen would want us to do is celebrate. I was talking to Roy Silver from Kentucky about it this morning, and Roy said she would want us to celebrate, and then she would want us to fight like hell, so let's do that again. <laughs> As my, I mean, my fucking brilliant copy, we give it up for these two hundred geniuses. As they said, as much as some of y'all railed on nonprofits, Haymarket, the great nonprofit, did a hell of a job on this conference. Multiple truths. Uh, I specifically want to shout out Naomi. She's the best editor of both asked for, and I would not be writing this book without her and Anthony. Um, I hear the South is in the building. I'm nothing without you. I also know Appalachia is in the building. Gang, gang. That might be the first time some of y'all ever heard anybody from Appalachia get a shout out. I wanna, uh, I wanna acknowledge Chicago is here. And it's here as well. Thank you all for letting us invade your city. Uh, I specifically wanna give love to the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, and, uh, Specifically, want to shout out my comrades with equity and transformation here. Uh, e is my family, and so I'm, I'm glad to have gotten to see you all. Uh, I know, raise your hand if you consider yourself Highlander fam. Just wave at me. I see you. I see you. I love you. Uh, and Anthony told me to make sure that I pitched to you uh, that if you're like, man, are you one of those people that come to a conference and then it's time to go home? And you're like, like I'm going to miss these people, and I want to stay together for like forever. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, hey, Marcus said you're going to go home, but there is going to be a thing just in 25 days at Highlander called Homecoming, um, and it's our 90th year. Um, yeah, I've never seen 90 look so good. Um, and what, what it is, is it's not a conference, so if you're coming for that, that won't be what you get. But if you want a basically movement family reunion, uh, and all of the good and challenge of it. If you want to learn a lot and teach a lot, if you want to hear Toshi Raven sing Bernice Johnson Raven songs, or Regina Taylor talk about family Hang, or any number of things, you're going to get that. Um, for those of you that can't travel to Tennessee, that's okay. We're going to have it virtual too. So um, all you have to do is go to highlandercenter.org or register. We hope to see you there. The last thing I'd have to say, or I'm both be in trouble and not be who I was raised to be, uh, is just to recognize some of the brilliant people who are the reason that I'm standing here, like Barbara Ransby, um, like Robin D.G. Kelly, who I swear, I hope the South rides for him as hard as he has written for us. Um, Everybody Gilmore, who lets me be on her DMs all the time. <laughs> You're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Give me direction, please. Um, so to my elders who made all this possible even before I knew what Haymarket was, I'm grateful. So now that I've said the days, I can get into it. And uh, like I was saying, my comrades that came to the organ <laughs> the Organized South session was mostly Southerners. So coastal elites, I don't know why you didn't come join us. We had a great time. 
they know that where I'm at right now is all over the place. Um, and so I don't have some fancy speech. I'm not a lecturer. I'm a popular educator and organizer and strategist. Um, I'm glad people still think that's a sexy thing. Um, so what I've got for you is a bunch of random thoughts that keep me up at night. So I'm just going to share those. Is that cool? So, you know, what I'm sure, because I talk to them and I ask them for a direction about what to say, is that, hey, Margaret wants me to talk about the importance of organizing the South, and I can do that. You can also Google Organize the South, or as it goes to the South, so it goes to the nation as a fact, not an opinion, or you could listen to what Robin said, or you could do multiple things to already know that the South is the most radical place in the United States. <laughs> um, it's the tip of the spear. Um, I can bore you with the stats. It's the largest geographic region in the Union. You're not going to win in the U.S. without organizing the South. Um, or I tell you that you're not knowing about the South is some white supremacist shit because it's the largest concentration of black people in the country. But y'all already know that. I can also tell you that for the dangerous homosexuals in the room, San Francisco and New York is not where most of us live. It is, in fact, the U.S. South. But y'all know that. So if we're going to have a socialism, it's got to include where? Real from your like your gut place answer, yeah. 
You ready? Do you want to win? Did you see how quick you answered? So you lied to me. You didn't think about it. So I'm going to give you another shot. Okay, you ready? I really want you to think about it. Okay? Do you want to win? Yeah. Guys, if you, if you say it as soon as I say it, then you did, I know you didn't say that. So I'm giving you one more shot to take a second and think about it and give me an advised answer, not just the right one. Do you want to win? So can I ask you another question? What is going to be required of you to win? I don't need you to answer this. This is for you. <laughs> I need you to know. Because I think if we actually thought about what would be required of us, then we would know that only some of us can storm capitals. Right? We would know that some of us actually don't have what it takes to be political educators, and that's okay. We'd know some of us are theater directors and cultural organizers, rather, some of us are scared to be on a block, and some of us can knock doors like a champ. Some of us should be governing now and doing electoral justice work, and some of us should be tearing down the state. Right? That all of that is true. Socialists can't teach us that dialectics are the way, and then get mad at us when we practice dialectics. <laughs> So if you, like me, were a person at this conference who went to a whole bunch of sessions and got a whole bunch of contradictory information about what socialists do, I get it. <laughs> it is what it is. Multiple truths are true. So the question isn't, what did socialists tell you to do at this conference, though if you felt moved based on what your answer to that second question is, you should do it. But what are you responsible for? What is your role? How can you know it unapologetically and play it excellently for the liberation of our people, all people, and for yourself? <laughs> I sometimes joke with my friends who have critiques of the, of the champagne socialists, that socialists deserve nice things. I still do believe that. But what I also know is that I deserve socialism. It's not selfless. We all deserve it. But it's, it's work. It is a practice. It is not five old, dead, white men floating heads over us. It is a doing thing. How many people went to Barbara Ransby's session? It was fan-fucking-tastic, right? And you heard what she said about the incredible, the illustrious Bell Hooks, right? Do you remember what she said? What did Bell say about feminism? It's an it's action. It's a, it's a doing thing. Bell didn't say she was a feminist. She said she did feminism. What a day it would be. If what we said was not we are socialists, whatever the fuck that means anymore, but we said we do socialism, that everywhere we gather, that everywhere we gather, we do socialism. Everywhere we gather, we do abolition. Everywhere we gather, we do black queer feminism. Everywhere we go, we do the dismantling of heteropatriarchy and transphobia. That who we are as a people is disability justice. What a day it would be. What it would look like if we practiced winning and celebrated that shit. What it would look like to keep it simple. Because actually, my folks might not understand on the block what it means to talk about dialectical historical materialism. 
But if I told them that they know what's up because they've lived it and their people have lived it, they'd be like, I know. They might not understand all of my long words and multi-syllable phrases about the terror and the, the implicit predatory nature of capitalism. But if I told them that people deserve more than folks that prioritize profit, they would agree. So what would it look like for us to keep socialism simple, to keep it accountable, to keep it as a practice? I had a really great question come my way during that Southern session where I was asked about uh, you know, what could bring the left together, because I said there wasn't a left, there's multiple lefts. You, heard, you even heard them shouting each other out in the room, right? Uh, what would bring us together? And what I said is, I don't know. But what I've seen as of 2020 was that crisis brought people together. But I couldn't let it go. I kept thinking about it at 3 o'clock in the morning at night. Thanks, AG, wherever you are. Um, and what I also believe is that it raised another question that is keeping me up. And I turned my hair white, made me want to pull my eyelashes out. I was like, how much cumulative black debt will, require, will be required for the left to come together? Okay? You guys said I could be honest, so I'm going to. How much more has to happen to black trans folks? How many more times do we have to be called out for when we don't show up? And the multiple truths is that, and socialists are leading, leading social movements. You know, I agree, David, we weren't ready. None of us were. And socialists were there. We absorbed them into mass work, not all 26 million. But all of there's still work to do. Those people didn't disappear. So what would it look like if we just did socialism. I was talking to a comrade after the session as well. She's, they told me that, uh, I, that they came from Richmond, Virginia. Can I talk about it? Came from Richmond, Virginia. And by themselves, y'all, like one person came from the South all the way to Chicago by themselves to cover this conference to meet you. I was like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> That's brave. And, uh, I said how the conference was asking how the conference was treating them, and they said, you know, nobody's talking to me. And probably without asking for my advice, I said, don't join a socialist organization full of people that won't talk to you. So what does it look like for us to do socialism, even in the places where we say we're practicing? Right? What does it mean to have 80% new people if we just talk to each other? How are we even right now absorbing? <laughs> incredibly new activated folks. Did we spend more time being smart and right than listening for the mass line, which y'all told me is how we're supposed to build strategies? Did you ask why these new folks are here? Did you ask why they came, what they cared about, what's keeping them up at night? Or did we spend more time talking about each other's organizations as the enemy and not the actual enemy? Not saying that's what happened. I'm just asking questions. So I know I'm probably over time. I'm gonna wrap this thing up. What I know from 2020, I'm still autopsying the movement moment that was was the uprising, the racial reckoning. What I know is that multiple truths exist. That dialectic shit was right. What I know is that a black and black indigenous people of color led movement that's multi ideological, multi tendency, multi sector multi-tactical, and likely multiple strategies is the only way we're going to win. It's the only way we're going to win.
And that if we're really going to be about that winning shit, we also have to practice governance. That that means governance of our movements, of the geographic spaces that we're in, and at the end of the day, even after your, whatever your socialist revolution looks like, somebody's got to fill in the potholes and make sure the sewage works. We need people that are doing that work. So to the comrade that came and hung with me last night that was telling me about working for the, like being an appointed governance position in the Park Service in California, thank you for reminding me that even though we might have critiques of the state, some of our folks are on the inside doing the Lord's work. In fact, that person just put out polling stations for folks in, uh, in California who are having like one of the worst heat waves I've ever seen. So thank you for your work. I'll leave you with this last random thought. <laughs> so y'all know I'm a missionary Baptist preacher's daughter. Uh, my dad is a preacher of preachers and uh, the son of many preachers. And uh, he would tell me to, to wrap this up, so I'm going to. Uh, but it also means I've, I've done a lot of Bible reading for better and for worse. And y'all, how many recovering Christians in the room? It's a bunch of us, I imagine. Y'all know how there's like a billion different versions of the Bible? No. So I'm going to call this one the Ashley Woodard Henderson standard, like revised standard version. But it might feel familiar. It feels like a Bible verse that I'm plagiarizing. It's because it is. It's Micah 6 8. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. For me, this is what socialism will look like until we meet again. Do justice, righteousness, do what's right. Love kindness, or love mercy, or love with grace. Walk humbly with our people. That's what I'll be doing until I see you again. I love you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.